Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. A few days ago, Canberra was all at buzz with the Pizzullo affair, and I was planning to have quite a bit to say about that in this podcast. But uh, just a short time later, it appears to have fizzled away. So I've had to scale back my planned tirade to something far more reasonable and factual. But just to quickly summarise the situation, Mike Pizzullo was the, uh, or still, I suppose, the head of uh, the very large and powerful Home Affairs Department who has been stood aside pending an investigation into a whole lot of leaked messages, WhatsApp messages that he sent to a Liberal Party power broker, which frankly were not at all flattering. And unless their fakes showed Mr. Pizzullo, a very powerful and experienced bureaucrat, to be basically an undemocratic schemer. And in that regard, I can proudly say to listeners, sort of told you so, because even though I don't think I've had a go at him personally, I have previously in these podcasts negatively reflected on the Home Affairs Department. I think it should be dismantled. Some changes were made to it when Labor came to office, but uh, but it still exists. Now, w- without going back through everything, and again, mindful of the fact that people outside of Canberra might not be that interested, uh, to, to put it in some sort of context, I'll quote from the Sydney Morning Herald. And this is referring to Mr. Pizzullo and, and the texts. He smeared journalists who criticised national security reforms or his favoured ministers. He boasted of his efforts to make press freedom a dead duck and repeatedly lobbied Briggs, this is the Liberal Party power broker, to convince Morrison, the Prime Minister, to introduce a media censorship regime. And he ridiculed the Senate Estimates Committee process, one of the key means of holding senior public servants and their ministers to account. So there you have it in summary. Now, unfortunately... As I've been arguing in these podcasts and in writing, this is now typical of what government has become with numerous ministers, sometimes also part of this anti-democratic view of the world. I mean, they don't often share their private thoughts, but this is the interpretation that we can make over things like this continuing cult of secrecy and a cult of cover-ups and trying to conceal facts and information from the Australian public. And and by the way, I'm not an extremist here. I hope people realise that there are a number now of other very conservative journalists, probably far less emotional than me, who have been commenting on very much the same thing. So this sort of attitude is showing not only contempt for we journalists, but it's for all of you for the listeners, for the Australian public. It's like we are being ruled by this oligarchy that thinks that they have this overarching aim to keep everything secret. Now, people are entitled to ask, do I know Mike Pizzullo? And the answer answer is, well, not really. 
Canberra being what it is, we've grimaced at each other at a couple of social functions before he went away to speak with people far more important than me, and I went on to speak with people far more pleasant than him. But to give a little bit of further background, this uh, event, these texts coming public, occurred in a much broader context of the activities of the Department of Home Affairs. And there, there have been, he made several references to my colleague, the journalist Annika Smithhurst, and a story that he, even via text, was in denial about that was back in, from memory, about 2015, where my colleague exposed what was essentially an outrageous bureaucratic power grab, where the idea from the Department of Home Affairs was to take over the Australian Signals Directorate, which was then and remains now part of the Department of Defence, the inference being that by taking over ASD, you would use it for domestic surveillance, which currently is illegal and highly improper and is just one of the sorts of things that in a country like Australia just should not happen. Anyway, the story was broken. It had no national security consequences whatsoever. It doesn't affect Australia's vulnerability to attack or it doesn't give China or the terrorists or the North Koreans or anything like that some some information that they can use to their advantage. It was simply exposing an embarrassing attempt to gain even more power. Now, as a consequence of that, the Australian Federal Police, which also then was part of the Home Affairs Department. It was separated out when Labor came to power. The AFP raided Annika Smithhurst's place and I think were searching for information for about eight hours, all because this scandal had been exposed. Now, I've, by the way, I've also been threatened with a raid, but uh, I'll tell that story on another occasion. Now, when we get back to the sort of the Canberra culture, it's become quite normal for dinner parties and things like that to be restructured at the last moment because a middle or upper level public servant has been called back to the office, supposedly because the minister wants something urgently. No, they don't. I know ministers that they you know, they value their weekends. Some of them are working, but unless there's some sort of crisis, they don't want to be reading a departmental briefing paper on Saturday morning or Sunday while they're having their brunch somewhere. This sort of stuff is happening because even more senior public servants are doing this sort of stuff because they want to ingratiate themselves to some ministerial advisor. And this sort of, okay, this sort of ingratiating behaviour happens in the private sector as well. But, you know, we're talking about government employees and we should have a system of government in this country that just works in a calm and rational fashion. Now, another consequence of Home Affairs and Mike Pizzullo was the creation of Border Force, what used to be Customs and a whole lot of other smaller agencies. They're all grouped together. And the theory goes, because 
Mr. Pizzullo personally always wanted to become Secretary of Defence, and basically he was never going to get there for reasons I can go into on another occasion. So he decided to create his own little substitute army, black uniformed army. Apparently, he was very keen on the design of the uh, the uniforms. Now, I'll before moving on to other topics, there was another incident back in August 2015 involving Australian border force and uh, Victorian police, which is funny in a way because they, uh, ABF, I believe they were the initiators of it, came up with this idea of, hey, let's do random identity checks in Melbourne. Let's, Let's wander around and just pick people at random and check out who they are. And you think, how's that going to work? I wonder who, who are the people who are going to be picked on? Scruffy-looking people, perhaps people who don't look like they fit in, perhaps people of Middle Eastern appearance, perhaps people of African appearance. What happens then if a person doesn't have their driver's licence on them? Are they, are they put in a camp for a day or two? How is it all going to work? Anyway, luckily, this stuff w- was leaked. Oh, by the way, some listeners might be comfortable with that sort of random checking of people in, in the streets. I'm not. I've been in countries where, where if you're suddenly confronted by people in uniform and you realise that you have absolutely no power in this situation, I can assure you it's a very scary and unpleasant event and I would never wish it on anyone else. Anyway, that idea of random stops by black uniformed officers on the streets of Melbourne came to nothing because the information leaked and there were sizable public protests. So it just fizzled with then recriminations all around about who to blame, by the way. And another point that I keep on stressing in these podcasts Okay, mainly about national security and and defence. But it is the broader point that bad government, bad governance affects everyone. We've seen it in RoboDebt. We can look at various defence projects that are badly run, that fail to deliver capability and ending up costing taxpayers billions and billions of dollars. And I'm not making these numbers up. If by an exercise of long division... 25 million people in Australia, just various projects through maladministration are costing Australians like thousands of dollars per person, maybe not every year, but, you know, that there are considerable amounts of of money involved. We also wouldn't have unnecessary helicopter groundings. The behaviour of some of our troops in Afghanistan might not have taken place if the system were more open and transparent. Here's another little one that irritates me. Our embassy in Kiev. Of the 50 countries that have sided with Ukraine, United States, Britain, Europe, Scandinavia, all of that sort of stuff, of the 50 countries, the only single one that does not have an embassy open in Kiev is Australia. Now, why is this? Well, we actually don't really know. When the invasion commenced, a whole lot of embassies very sensibly pulled their people out because it looked like the country was about to be overrun. But since that time, all other 49 official supporters of Ukraine have moved back in. We have not. 
and we cannot find out why. It's just this vague stuff about, oh, well, oh, the security assessment and, you, you know, these professionals, we can't see their advice and we don't know who they are. Uh, that they've given this advice to government. Well, if I were, uh, and I, I'm sorry that um, that Penny Wong, somebody who I otherwise have a lot of respect for, has gone along with this, because if I were in her office, I'd be calling in the security people and putting them on the spot and saying, oh, okay, show me the assessment that you have come up with and explain why it is that we are completely out of step with everyone else, including the United States and Britain. And if they tried to waffle with various percentages and calculations and things like that, I'd say, okay, come back to me with calculations about the risks involved in crossing the road. There are risks involved in everything that we do. It's a matter of how they're managed and it's a matter of how they're perceived. And when it comes to this one in Kiev, how this situation is allowed to continue damaging Australia's international reputation, I do not know. Same sort of thing that I've discussed before. The secrecy continues about VIP flights. Minister Miles and the others, they continue to hide behind, pardon me, the BS assessment that the security agencies somehow are against doing this because it reveals pattern of life stuff. That's just nonsense. The opposition are uninterested in pursuing it. Guess why? Because they, when they were in government, it suited them as well. Anyway, in future, if people are interested, you can read my forthcoming 10-volume treatise, The Decline of Australian Government in the Last 25 Years. Anyway, moving on from that, let's talk um, some more specific defence stuff, international relations. China. In recent days... A Chinese Navy ship has visited Port Moresby. Apparently, they actually had a couple of uh, trainees on board from PNG. I think it was a training ship, but it was armed. It's, you know, it's a, a naval ship. Now, Port Moresby is 850 kilometres to Cairns. Um, a couple of days prior to that, there was an announcement about new security arrangements or strengthened security arrangements between East Timor and China. Now, Dili is 720 kilometres from Darwin, and China now has, as we all know, a solid relationship with the Solomon Islands. It's a bit further away, 1,700 kilometres to Cairns. But look at the pattern. We've got China's navy expanding rapidly. It has now more surface ships than the USN. If you add in the Chinese Coast Guard, and the government-owned fishing fleet, we're talking about vast numbers of ships. These are the facts. We can all have different interpretations of what it means, but what I've just counted through, we, we can all agree on the facts and figures that, you, you know, these things are happening and in, in this part of the world. So what is Australia doing? The first measure that any country implements when the level of threat to it is increasing is to increase the defence budget. Australia is not doing that. There's some sort of illusory figure that in about 2028 an increase in defence expenditure will kick in. No one believes that. 
the existing budget is already 1.5 billion worse off over the next three years because of inflation. On top of that, you can add in, I keep on going on about it and will continue to do so, the $3 billion contribution that we're making to AUKUS. And on top of that, we've got things like uh, Defence Industry Minister Pat Conroy announced out of the blue on September the 14th. This is a quote from a speech that he gave to Aspie. $6 billion will be invested in Australia's industrial capability and workforce over the next four years alone. Really, that's news to everyone. I've asked for a breakdown of that $6 billion number, but of course there hasn't been a reply. I, I suspect that it, like a number of other things, has just been made up. I hope I'm wrong. So all of these promises are being made and numbers talked up, but the practical effects are basically nothing at all. So rather than having a second-hand nuclear-powered submarine in the late 2030s, let's do something now. And it's not as if people are out of ideas. Start with getting the Arafuras, uh, the offshore patrol vessels, into service as soon as possible and putting a decent gun and canisterized launched missiles on them. Send them to the Southwest Pacific to start doing regular regional visits. The canisters on them can be empty as long as they look like warships. At the moment, they have two heavy machine guns, so they are as well armed as the Pacific patrol boats that we donate to regional countries for basic policing functions. Then start cooperating with the United States Navy and especially France. France is often left out of the equation. I think that's wrong. They're an important presence in this part of the world. So look at this scenario. A Chinese warship visits, calls into Dili or Port Moresby or, or wherever. One month later, two or three warships from the US, Australia and France, that combination, visit. If the Chinese ship has stayed for two days, then we stay for four. Sailors have shore leave. They can go and spend a fortune in local bars and whatever other establishments sailors on shore leave avail themselves of. We say to the governments of the countries involved, for the duration of these deployments, we are at your disposal. It's not here just to hold cocktail parties on the helicopter deck. Let's do something practical. Let's crack down on illegal fishing. Let's seize as many boats as possible by the way, many of them from China, you give the seized cargo, the fish, to your people or sell them or both. You confiscate the ships and you sell them or destroy them or use them yourself. Start doing this sort of stuff. China will soon get the message because it's a lot simpler, cheaper and faster for ships from Cairns and Umea to get to these places than it is if they leave from Shanghai or Hainan Island. And another point that I've made previously, as well as arming the Arafuras, which should be a high priority, fast track the morphing of that production line into corvettes so that more heavily armed ships are in the water by 2028. At which time, by the way, we will be down to two air warfare destroyers because one will be going into refit in 2026 for a couple of years. Now, I was going to do more of my imaginary conversation with Lloyd Austin, but I've run out of time. 
So I'll save that for the next episode. Other than to highlight the, uh, in my imaginary conversation, uh, I will be talking about the $3 billion donation to the United States and then concluding it with the concept of asking for new Virginia-class submarines rather than second-hand ones. And I'll repeat the point that I made in, I think it was last week's podcast, groveling to the United States does not make them like us. It means that they view us with mild contempt. Stand up to people in a polite and respectful way. In turn, they will be polite and respectful back. Nobody, deep down, nobody likes a shoe polisher that much. Okay, that's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.